This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbera, where we celebrate Bill Hannah, Joe Barbera, and the thousands with them, whose great entertainment keeps on entertaining generations. I'm Greg Airbar, and I thank you so much for joining me and my special guest, Roger Stevenson, son of one of the greatest voice actors and on-screen actors in the history of recorded sound and picture, John Stevenson. Thank you very, very much for being here, Roger. You're welcome. Glad to be here. First of all, I want to talk to you about who you are and share with everybody a little bit about yourself first. Well, I pretty much raised in Woodland Hills, a couple places in Woodland Hills. Went to El Camino Real High School for those that uh, live in the Valley. They'll know the high school. Sadly, my sister Katie passed away a year and a half ago from cancer, but... I'm sorry. Yeah, we grew up together and loved each other. And you know, like I said, sadly, she she passed away suddenly. I'm so sorry, because when we were working on the book and we were communicating, you had sent copies of the albums to her. Exactly. And so I remember. Yeah, like, like I said, you know, just because I remember it, I'll jump to it right now. With the advent of Facebook and, and the internet, I can't tell you how many times we message each other if my dad was on television. He's on Hogan's Heroes tonight, or... They just showed the love bug or whatever. Whatever it was, it was a great way to stay in touch because then we would segue to what's going on in each other's lives. So besides missing her, I, I sadly missed those interchanges and talking about our dad. You know, that's a point that's worth pondering is that those of us who, who love this material and love the work of people such as your father, it's also wonderful to consider how it affected their family. 
And we're talking about, if anyone needs an explanation of who John Stevenson is, he was probably the most heard voice actor in any Hanna-Barbera cartoons for decades, all the way up to the 90s. Uh, with the exception of Frank Welker, probably did more voices, utility voices, lead voices, including Dr. Benton Quest, uh, Mr. Peevely on Hair Bear Bunch, and probably most famously, Mr. Slate, the bane of Fred Flintstone's existence. <laughs> Fred got fired and rehired in every show just about. So uh... Yeah, but what he could bring to these characters was... And this is what made these cartoons great, is they had actors able to take the lines and bring as much layering as they could. Because Slate was a cranky, difficult boss, but your dad added tone to it. And there was vulnerability in some of the episodes of Mr. Slate. Right. We, we, we didn't get to know a lot about him. His wife's name changed a few times. Even his name changed and his appearance changed. But there were some great episodes where we found out life wasn't always perfect for Mr. Slade either. <laughs> so, but I said, kind of going back to my biography, I went to college and basically had a 29 and a half year career in law enforcement and uh, blissfully retired for 12 years now. It was a, a fantastic career, but I'm glad I'm not working currently. It is nice to relax. It is nice to. Well, that, the profession has changed. It's a much more difficult profession than it was when I was working my 29 years work. Everything, everything's become much more complicated uh, than it used to be. Yeah. And, and uh, there's a million perceptions of everything. How did your dad feel about your career? I think he was happy that I was happy and had a successful career. My mom was pretty much the same, but she was a mom. Mm -hmm. A little, always a little apprehensive. She was terrified of two things. Me playing tackle football and riding motorcycles. And she said, so you got me back by being a cop for 29 years. You know, that was the payback for not playing tackle football or riding motorcycles. But was it the Barney Miller thing where it was like she worried every time you went out something might happen or something like that? No, it, I don't think so. I probably all way, way, way back in her mind after they got used to the career. But my daughter, who's 30 years old, she said to me, on more than one occasion when I was working, she's like, I never really worried about you, but she goes, I'm so glad you're not working now. Ah. You know, it's something I greatly appreciated her sentiments. And like I said, I'm to a certain extent glad I'm not working now either. Yeah. You've paid your dues. I tried. Yes. But, uh, you know, still involved with the police department, police officers association, go fishing with some of the guys I used to work with. So I still stay in touch. Did you know Ken Osmond? He was a... Yeah, he was an LAPD motor officer, yeah. From Leave it to Beaver. Yeah. I think I met him once at some conference or convention when I was you know, early on in my career. Did the other police know that your dad was Johnny Quest's dad or anything? Did you ever... It would just come up every once in a while in conversation or somebody that knew what my dad did would say, hey, did you know that Roger's dad was... Mr. Slade or Dr. Quest or whatever. And then that would you know, obviously lead to a little mini bio <laughs> that I would let the people know, if, depending on how interested they were uh, about his career. I was always proud of him. I'm a proud son and still am to this day. And uh, that's why I greatly appreciate having, getting to talk about him now. Well, we appreciate it too. Uh, I don't know where to begin as far as his credits because they go on and on and on. But the, <laughs> of course, there's the, the major ones, but 
on Scooby-Doo, probably more unmaskings. It was your dad's voice. Meddling kids was something he said more than any actor. <laughs> he, he never referred to uh, my sister and I as a meddling kids. That's nice. <laughs> that That's very nice. So. But what probably is uh, not as well. And speaking of Love Bug, you know, in Herbie Rides Again, I wait for the moment where the lawyers come in and your dad's right up front going, just a moment, Mr. Hawk, do you have the necessary permits? <laughs> I'm like, do you realize who that voice is? You know, because to many of us who knew the cartoons even better, having that voice come out of somebody is kind of mind blowing. But he started as, a, I guess, a stage and screen actor, correct? He, he did, you know, way back, you know, summer stock in Chicago and did a little bit of radio in the Midwest. And then when he moved to California with his roommate in 1948, both were blessed with getting jobs. So they were able to uh, move out of the YMCA in Silver Lake, where they they resided for a while before they got some money. And then at that point, he started like finished up in radio and then transitioned very well into black and white television. And uh, I've seen him on many, many shows. I remember seeing him on uh, Real McCoys playing a photographer. And the ladies were swooning over him that he was also <laughs> <laughs> a leading man type on shows. But yeah, he, I get pretty much got the best of, you know, got the end of radio when radio was still king. Doing uh, It's Always Sunday, the one he, the show he starred in. Lux Radio Theater, Texaco Theater, and all the live radio national broadcast of shows he was you know involved in in that too did you ever go to one of the luck shows or was, was that before your time or before my time that this seems like a stretch but if your name is roger and race bannon's real name is roger is there any connection there and the character he played on people's choice was roger ah roger crutcher i believe was the name on people's choice with jackie that was his character and everybody thought that but his brother was named Roger, and I was named after his brother. Ah, all the all the speculation, but now it's Uncle Roger. <laughs> you know, that's my namesake, I guess technically. And he had his own series, and I didn't realize he had his own series. Yeah, it, it's uh, it was a CBS radio recorded in Hollywood, and it's called "It's Always Sunday." And you know, in checking archives, I've been able to find it once, and then lost the link, and haven't heard anything since. I do have several CBS photographs black and white of, of him recording like promotional type photographs and then i li literally have two original tickets to get in to see the live recording broadcast of the show you know it's, it's kind of fun to look at it's, it's starring john stevenson <laughs> wow and uh, another interesting thing is that he was the first or the one of the earliest announcers for i love lucy that is correct the trivia is the first person the nation saw in Lucy and Ricky's living room was my dad. He was the on-camera spokesperson for Philip Morris Cigarettes, and he introduced the show. And then he also did a, you know, our sponsors break, I guess you technically call it, you know, in the middle of the show. You can go online on in YouTube and do John Stevenson, Philip Morris, actually get the whole video of his intro to the I Love Lucy show. And little did he know that the animated openings, because this wasn't known at the time, the little stick figure Lucy and Desi's with the Philip Morris package, those were animated by Hannah and Barbera when they were still with MGM. Yeah, it's kind of a small world. Yeah. Just like he did, I guess, some radio, a couple radio 
versions of Dragnet. And then he was in the, the 1950s or early 60s version on screen with Jack Webb. And then Jack Webb hired him to do the tags of the Dragnet 67, which was Jack Webb and Harry Morgan. He did the tag ends of that. So there's transition from radio to black and white television to color television. Yeah, there were uh, a handful of actors who really made a successful transition from radio to television. People like Joseph Kearns, who was a really a utility actor in radio, but became really famous as Mr. Wilson on Dennis the Menace, you know. But you go back and listen to the radio shows, and he's playing like murderers and lawyers. And Frank Nelson, who was a dramatic actor before he started going, yes, and things like that. I don't know if you want to uh, segue to my dad, you know, where he started basically where he was born all the way to school and the service, or you want to... Well, we could go over that. Then we went to Northwestern, came from Wisconsin. Right. Born in Darlington, raised in Kenosha, graduated from, I think it's Bradford or Bedford High School in Kenosha, and then went to Ripon College out of high school, was in the ROTC, and then World War II came along. He left the college he qualified for officer training as a pilot but that was short-lived because he was involved in a in during training his instructor took over flying because they were in inclement weather and subsequently the instructor crashed the plane oh no you know the trainer and he ended up subsequently figured out he probably he cracked the disc so he had to do some rehabilitation and then there was no longer slots for pilots, so the Army sent him to uh, radio school and gunnery school. He then spent a year and a half in a, as a crewman in B-24s flying in China and India until the end of the war. Came back to Northwestern, GI Bill, and was able to get his bachelor's degree at Northwestern, and then was one quarter short of getting his master's degree in drama with a minor in education, came out to Hollywood, never went back to get his master's. Started getting jobs in Hollywood, had a 50, 60-year career. I would imagine that the phrase work ethic would apply very much to your dad. Yeah, you know, and I all figured even when he was in his, I don't know, say, 60s or maybe into his early 70s, you know, he would not pass up viable auditions. And I think probably it just goes back to being raised during the Depression, you know, any job was a good job. I think part of it was just driving to Hollywood used to be easy from Woodland Hills, and then it became a chore, let alone going down into Venice and where some of the ad agencies were located. Just the drive bothered him to the point where I think he told his agent, if they don't know who I am, they're probably not going to hire me if I go in and do an audition. If they want to hire me, great, but I'm probably not going to go do an audition for something that especially is not going to be a, a national commercial or something like that. So he got picky after, you know, a 50-some-year career a little bit, but well-deserved, I think. He was entitled. Did he ever talk to you about outstanding moments on some of these? I mean, these were classic shows. He was on almost all the classic shows and movies like Spartacus. And did he ever talk? Did you ever ask him, you know, what was this person like or that person like? A little bit. He was he was a very private person and would regale us. More of the funny stories are the stories about people he, he worked with or associated with in the business. was uh, He was involved in the Hollywood Hackers Celebrity Golf Group. 
uh-huh. made up of people across the board in, in the industry. He would be relaxed and on the golf course, and there's a lot of levity and joking around, as well as some serious golf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he'd talk about funny things that happen on the golf course more than, you know, I, I work with, I guess, working with Mel Blank, you know, that, that was just like breathing because he did so much work with Mel and Dawes and Don Messick. I know, you know, and I think it just kind of a, make my mom a little jealous that, you know, he did some uh, I Dream of Genies, I think, with Barbara Eden. He came home saying she's got to be one of the most beautiful women in the world. <laughs> and I, you know, more than anything else, I think that was, uh, I remember that. He was also in How to Marry a Millionaire, which you can get almost all those episodes on YouTube now. And it's actually quite an entertaining show. And Barbara Eden plays the Marilyn Monroe role. She wouldn't wear her glasses. Yeah. And so he's one of the few actors who are on both Barbara Eden sitcoms. Uh-huh. But other than that, yes, he, he worked with Orson Welles in, in radio and in, in some of the, the classic radio actors and then transitioned to, to film. To him, it was really just a job. Mm-hmm. And he appreciated professionalism. And he would come grumbling every once in a while about, you know, Hanna-Barbera into the 80s started getting non-professional voice actors, you know, just stars or, you know, some of the teeny boppers. <laughs> Even though Mark Hamill was worked with my dad and gushed about his, his talents. So he was a fan of your dad because he is not only a voice actor, but a fan of voice actors. Absolutely. He was on Genie for those who don't. That was his first, um, I don't know if it was his first job, but it was his first lead role was Corey on Genie. And uh, one of the dozen roles your dad played was the great Haji, the guy who was the head of all the Genies. Who, uh, yes. And he let, uh, I love the series, so I know it really well. In one episode, he had them take care of his magic dog and things like that. So he was on, he was on every show a lot. Yeah. But that is kind of a, a pivotal moment there because, you know, there was there's sort of this separation between professional voice actors and movie stars who do it because of marquee value. And then there are actors that move back and forth between it. Yeah. And at the time, people didn't really understand or know much about voice acting in like the 60s and 70s. Right. So it, it, you could be much more anonymous, I think, when you did it. And that, you know, the stories, they pop into my mind as we move around. He and Paul Winchell were very good friends and obviously did quite a bit of recording together. Uh-huh. But one of the things they would like to do, there's a, a restaurant, and I, I believe it still exists, called Chili John's in Burbank. Uh-huh. And that was one of their favorite places to go to lunch in between. If they had a morning session and, and an afternoon session at Hanna-Barbera, they would go there to have lunch. And I, I was honored, you know, when I was a little guy, well, 13, 14, during the summer, I'd go watch my dad record at H&B. They, people would recognize Paul Winchell, not only facially because of Jerry Mahoney and all that, but obviously he had a very distinctive voice. But then they'd recognize my dad's voice, but they wouldn't know who he was. There would be people that come, Mr. Winchell, can I have your autograph? And uh, I don't know who you are, but your voice sounds familiar. Can I have your autograph to my dad? You know, and that happened on on more than a few occasions. People would, in public, he was not a public person, but every once in a while, someone would come up to him and say, I'm sorry I recognize your voice, but I don't know your name. You know, so my name's John Stevenson and talk to him a little bit and then move on or finish his meal. 
know. That's kind of nice. That's kind of nice because you, you don't want to be rude. The thing about being famous, that's sometimes a downside. You want to be nice to people. You, you appreciate the fans, but sometimes you just want to eat. <laughs> and you don't have to worry about it if they don't really know you well. I was never with him when he had to say, you know, I'm sorry, I'm eating. It really didn't happen that much, but it did happen. But like I said, he is a very private person. That's why he didn't do a lot of the conventions, you know, which have incrementally grown in numbers and size, you know, in the last, I don't know what, 10 or 15 years, probably. Yeah. He did a couple of them. There's about it. It's about an hour, 15, 20 minute. The one convention he did was like, I don't know, BotCon or something, because it was related to like Transformers and such. Mm-hmm. I know we're talking Hanna-Barbera, which wasn't Hanna-Barbera, but uh, yeah, he did a conference with Michael Bell and Greg Baker, I believe the name, you know, and he was on the dais for about an hour and a half as a panel. He was horrified by that kind of stuff. You know, that's why he never did it. You know, or he did this one, and you know, thankfully there's video of, of him doing it. Yeah, that's also uh, a common thing with some actors who, even though they love to perform and they love to give their art to the public, they can also be very shy. They don't particularly feel comfortable one-to-one with people. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if it was that. I think, you know, he would forget a character or a situation on our show. You know, by the time he got home, you'd say, hey, what did Fred and Barney do today? Or you'd ask him about a show he recorded. Yeah, and he says, he goes, oh, he just the usual stuff. And at the conventions, people get down to what was this character thinking at this particular time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, my dad, you couldn't say, well, I don't even remember the voice I did after 15 years. <laughs> yeah, because he moved on to more things, went from one thing to another. And those of us who just thrive on watching, rewatching, and re-listening and memorizing, we know every detail. So right. it's kind of like, I'm sorry, I... <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, it's that we're not. I'm not shooting you down, but I just don't remember. And uh, you know, season premieres. You know, everybody would have a nice breakfast and sit down on Saturday mornings, usually with the second Saturday in September, when all the new cartoons would come out. When we were growing up, and we'd all watch shows that he did. But then it was you know out to work, do their chores in the backyard. You know, my dad and I, so... You know, I I want to talk more about that, and I want to have you come back, because I want to talk more about the family watching, what it was like to watch and listen to your dad doing these sort of things. That, from that point of view, and some of the other voice actors yeah. and the Hanna-Barbera years. But for now, I just want to thank you, Roger Stevenson. Thank you for being on the uh, fantastic world of Hannah and Barbera, and we'll be seeing you again soon, hopefully. Okay. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help me make more of them, please click subscribe, tell all your friends, and you can visit me at gregovision.com or on the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbera podcast Facebook page. Thanks, and hear from you later. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.